This Magic the Gathering podcast and many more can be heard online at manadeprived.com slash podcasts. Leave a comment and tell us what you think. I'm Michael J. Flores, and this is the Ancestral Recall Podcast on the streets of New York City. So we were just uh, at Movie Club. Uh, Roman got to go to his like second movie club. Tonight we saw what movie, Roman? Unforgiven. We saw Unforgiven, which was shown by Grand Prix, I think a Grand Prix champion, certainly Grand Prix top eight competitor, Daniel Oman in shorts. His brother Steve is a Hall of Famer, so Dan showed Unforgiven. I was a few minutes late, and I got there and I saw Gene Hackman on the screen. And they were talking about cutting up whores. And I didn't know what movie it was. So I was just like, I Googled Gene Hackman cut up whores. I'm like, oh, Unforgiven. I saw this when I was like in high school. Academy Award winner. And so it won four Academy Awards, including Best Picture and Best Supporting Actor, Gene Hackman. The movie was uh, starring as the uh, main protagonist, as well as directed by Clint Eastwood. Anyway... Unforgiven, saw this, so like, all right, Roman, why don't you come to movie club? Then afterwards, we'll go to the studio and record the Ancestral Recall podcast. Roman, however, makes some sort of BS excuse that the studio is not open. It's closed this week. All right, so Roman's entire purpose on being in this podcast is to provide a studio, which he has not provided this week. So I had to pull out an iPhone, and we're recording like Top Eight Magic Style, which is horrible audio. Yeah, even lower than top level podcast <laughs> you know it, it's just, we're just on the on the the hierarchy of 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 audio recording quality we're we're at we're at bdm levels right yeah. now but i will just not have my half of the podcast i will not bring us something to read okay <laughs> instead i brought us we're, we're just gonna wing it tonight we're winging it all right um so if you hear buses going by or whatever, don't get used to it. I'll, I'll, I'll take it out in post, as, as us audio people say. Really? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> okay, so, I can't do that much. All right, so what I wanted to do, this is actually my plan anyway, even if we had gone to the studio. Uh, instead of reading an article this week, I actually wanted to study the trajectory, the young career, the et cetera, as it were, of Roman Fusco in light of some articles we've read here on the Ancestor Recall podcast. And I'd like to start at the very beginning, which was our first episode, How to Win a PTQ. Roman, go. All right, so I think we first recorded our uh, first episode of the podcast. Uh, we started with How to Win a PTQ, and I jokingly said that it changed my life. And then you said, no, I think it actually changed your life, Roman. Uh, but all, all joking aside, it really... Uh, impacted how I uh, prepared myself for different tournaments that I wanted to win, you know, how to put yourself in the mindset that you are going to place first in the tournament, how to make the right deck choices. Um, it's a really important article for having the right frame to win an event. So how did that impact your actual tournament performances, reading or reading aloud this article? Uh, 
me, and I was like, it's not a secret. Did it did it do anything for your actual tournament performances? Yeah, I, I've definitely prepared, or definitely done a lot better in tournaments like the last year or so. Did you, for example, read it and then immediately win the regional championship? That's true. That that did happen. <laughs> That was a specific uh, thing that happened? Yeah, but I think overall in, in tournament, uh, I've had a lot more tournament success since reading that article. I, I will say that. So what are some of the, you know, operational or tactical things you changed in your tournament performance or everyday life that came from that? Like, you're like, oh, I'm winning more now. So you must be doing something different, right? So what are you doing differently? Uh, I probably put a lot more time into testing, into trying, find, like, trying to find like the right deck for the right event. Um, I think uh, another article that sort of impacted this was also uh, going rogue. Yeah. So. Uh, I believe it's called uh, the rogue strategy. The rogue strategy. Sorry, I'm not going rogue. Um, especially when I top aided the standard classic in Roanoke. I remember the the tour the during the invitation I played. Is that the Spring to Mind one? The Spring to Mind deck, yeah. yeah. I played Green Black Energy at um, the Invitational, and like I the worst possible choice, right? Be sure, like, I went three one day one, and then like day two I went like one three, and it was awful, right? Uh, but the Spring to Mind deck. I just like fell in love with it, right? I was, like no one was expecting it. It crushed all the creature decks, all the zombie decks. Um, so I, I feel like I've definitely started to prepare more and, and think about like the, the format more, like preparing on a week to week basis. Maybe not like, when I, when I first started playing Magic, you know, standard, I played abs and aggro every single week. But and you didn't even play the good list. No. Like the and the Andy Boswell list. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but you know, I, I never put up any like decent results with that. Uh, I don't know. I, I just put myself more into a mindset also of not that I'm like better than the, the players in the room, but I have like the will to win the tournament. So that's a how to win a PTQ lesson, right? Yeah, going, going, uh, circling back to how to win a PTQ. So the rogue strategy is about choosing your deck. And it's about choosing a strategy that maybe the opponents don't know how to play against it or it does something a little bit different mm -hmm. to get an advantage, right? Yeah, so and that, that kind of circles back because a big part of how to win a PTQ is deck choice. Maybe not picking the deck to beat uh, for the for a given tournament, right? Like I think in the our first podcast you said, or at least when you were writing the article, that deck choice was like the number one most important thing. Uh, I mean, I wrote before. a different article once that I said that deck choice is like the it's like the most important decision that you can make. Yeah, and it's in fact like it's a differentiator between like intelligence and moron right like it's like I think it's pretty stark like a deck, okay. deck choice decisions are like oh this is a good deck choice decision or you're just dumb okay. right and there's not a lot of like play I think that's changed in recent years um like maybe is that due to like you know cards being more inherently powerful on the road yeah like thir well, oh. 13 years ago there were different options that you could have around things like the speed of your answers relative to the speed of somebody's threats, power level of uh, aggro cards, um, 
Availability of ramp cards, availability of deck searching, availability of deck touching, right? Like a lot of those things allowed a player to uh, kind of make a deck choice that uh, had, a, had an outsized impact on their win expectation relative to today, right? So, like, if you're just like, going to enter a, a tournament cold right now, like a standard tournament cold, like, I would totally think it's completely defensible to just play mono red, yeah. right? Even though mono red is probably the most popular deck. Uh, I think it's pretty good on power level. I think it's, a, it's an effective deck. It's an elegant deck. I would have never said that about playing Jundur Fairies in standard. Jundur really? Fairies were, yeah, they were bad bets. Like, uh, like, they always produce a lot of top eight competitors, but that was only because of the sheer volume of the number of players playing it. Mm -hmm. Like, so you could have eight Jund decks in a top eight, but that wasn't actually a signal that Jund was a good deck to play. There were just so many people playing Jund that you would have to have an overwhelming number of people in top eight. Yeah. Like, I don't think there was ever a point after uh, Ancestral Vision, was that the name of it? The, the Bad Ancestral Recall? Yeah. After that card left standard, that fairies was a positive win expectation in standard. At any point after that, it's always negative win expectation. And people would play it, and some of them would make top eight because it was a pretty popular deck, right? But it was not a good deck to actually play if you were interested in having uh, a positive likelihood of winning a match. You're just like not likely to. Uh, but look, it would have great matchups, right? Fairies was very good against um, like the the mono Cascade Swans of Brennar Gold deck, for example. They almost mm. couldn't lose to that deck. But uh, but I yeah, I would say they're about mono red. But I think like I think right now you could play mono red, one of multiple different God Pharaoh's gift decks, teamer, blue, blue white. Monument, Teamer, Black Green, Second a different Sun. Black Green, Second Sun. I think they're all, I, I think they're all viable deck choices, and I'm not sure that any of them I would think have like a dramatically better. I, that if they were, if they were in yeah, front the, of me. The format is like so open right now, and all the decks are doing like inherently powerful things that they're all sort of on the same playing field, right? Like I'll tell you a thought process I had recently. I was just like, one of the decks I really wouldn't play is Blue Red, but like I don't know. I, I, I don't think Blue Red is a good deck to play on on percentage likelihood of winning a match, but I would still play it, right? Like, if I were just going to play three rounds or four rounds of FNM, just be like, all right, I'll Blue Red, I don't care. Like, but yeah. it's like, it's weird. Like, I feel like if I'm playing Blue White Approach to the Second Suns, I will win game one against Blue Red over 80% of the time. And I don't think most people think the matchup goes that way. Yeah. Like, I just understand how to play the matchup. And, yeah. like, you know, if they know how to play against you, maybe maybe they won't lose. But, like, you have such Morseys in the, the blue-white side versus blue-red. They only have, like, eight ways to kill you. Like, you have way more Blessed Alliances and cast-outs than they have Gearhawks. Yeah, like, they'll have to, like, at some point waste their counterspells, right? And they could just draw their deck. Yeah, but they don't you. have that many counterspells. Yeah, yeah. And they, they have, they, like, four. But, like, think about how many times they cast, like, Glimmer of Genius or Hieroglyphic Illumination yeah. during the whole match and how little you're doing that. Or if you understand the matchup, like, how little you have to do that. Yeah, yeah. But, the, but the thing is, you, you can do it as much as you want, actually, because they're probably flashing that stuff back with Gearhawks. Yeah. Right? So, like, it, it, you could deck them, but you could actually just kill them. Right? Like, if you cast the first approach to the second sons, they're probably just going to let it resolve. Right? Yeah. But now there's like 
at least three must-counter cards left in your deck, and they only have four disallows, right? I mean, you just make sure you don't get screwed by a sensor or something. Yeah. Like, so they have like literally four disallows. Like, if that's not that hard to play against. If you also are playing a sub-game of just decking them, and they have to counterspell all of your removal cards, right? Like, they can't, they don't have enough counters for all of it. So, like, and so unless they're actively playing to not get decked, which is tough, then it's, it's not that bad of a matchup. Even though I think people look at it and they're like, oh, what a miserable matchup for blue-white. It's actually not that miserable. So, um, you know, to bring it all back, I think you could play blue-white monument, blue-white approach to second zones. You'd probably just play blue-white control. It's not that bad. Um, I'd much rather play blue-white control than blue-red control. Mono-red, mono-black, other mono-black. Any of these decks, I think. Ramp decks, I could just totally see playing any of them and like not hating myself. Yeah. And I think in other eras, there's just so few, like there's such narrow bands of available deck choices that weren't actively stupid, right? Like, so, um, but I think, like, I think you still want to be in a situation where you're getting an outsized value on your deck. When you played the Blue Light Approach of Second Sun's deck, it was like you were like one of the first people to ever do well with it. Like, yeah, it was like that week in no, me, Dan, like a few other people were going to look at the deck. All right, so I actually want to talk about something else. That weekend, I told you not to play uh, Burn without Eidolon of the Great Rebel, right? Right. In fact, I said I would disown you. So I just wanted to like throw something out there. Burn in Modern without Eidolon of the Great Rebel won the won the Grand Prix the next week. But then like Patrick Chapin and I were dissecting it and like I was saying I could understand not playing Eidolon of the Great Rebel. Like it's still not right, I don't think. But I could understand not doing it if you're gonna play cards like Forks Bolt, like a cheap one or yeah. something. But to replace it with Shrine of Burning Rage, which is just like a non-card. I think the only thing that you learn from this is that the burn strategy is so good. Because <laughs> he literally just had like a 56 card deck that cut the best card in the deck. Like, Drying to Burning Rage makes no sense as the direct replacement for Eidolon the Great Rebel. Mm -hmm. It's worse in every matchup as far as I can tell. Do you ever want it? Ever? It seems like a worse top deck in a lot of times than Eidolon, right? Yeah, like, even if you don't like Eidolon on a matchup, it can still chump block, right? Trying to Burning Rage is five mana to do zero damage, right? Like, it, it requires a lot, of, a lot of commitment in order to do anything, sure. and it's an enormous amount of resources. Versus Eidolon of the Great Revel is two mana one time to deal, like, ten damage. <laughs> Well, it depends on the matchup, obviously. But, yeah, I just want to throw that out. So I said, I disown you, but then the next day, you top eight of the classic, so I had to undisown you Thanks. so that I could physically borrow your copy of the blue-white deck so I could win my third consecutive FNM. <laughs> um, so, but the thing that's funny about it is, you showed me your deck, and I look, at first I'm like, I don't even really know how this deck works, so you had to work through it a little bit. But you made the comment, this is the best deck to play this week, which is a great, which is a great, you know, ancestor recall sort of way of looking at deck selection. Mm -hmm. But I'd never play it again. I think it's pretty good still. In fact, I, I I suggested you play a version of it for the RPTQ last weekend, right? Yeah. I think I think it's still a good choice. I might play it in, D in DC if I have like a good 75. Maybe I shouldn't though. Maybe I should play something crazier. 
Like I think that playing some, I think that the format is a little bit mature, so people yeah. know what most of the decks are. Yeah. I think that you in particular, if people know your name, you know, uh, you keep telling me you're showing up to tournaments and people know your name, right? So if you're in that situation and they see, I don't know, like a sensor and a blessed alliance, they probably have a pretty good grasp of most of the rest of the cards in your deck, right? Sure. Like they might not know how many Aether Meltdowns you have, but they're gonna know that, you know, maybe they shouldn't tap out on the turn when you have seven available mana. Right? Yeah. <laughs> maybe something they should do or try to kill you before they get to that point. So, um, yeah, I, I, I would think that you might get some additional value uh, from playing, I know, a different rogue deck, but yeah. this is a question about coming up with one. So here's a different one, okay. different question. There's another article that we talked about, this one I didn't write, that you said was really influential on your success when you played the Approach to the Second Suns deck, which was Nick Spagnolo's How to Cast Blue Spells. Yep. It was, it was really funny that we had we that we uh, covered that article, and then you know Dan shipped me the list for the second Sun deck. It had no creatures in it, just like solid like blue white control. I had never registered the card Island, I think, or more than like one Island for a competitive REL. I believe you had two Islands. In two your... Islands in the the band Delirium deck. Okay, so more more than more than two. Yeah. Or I've never registered a deck with zero creatures in the main deck. I think for for the event. Uh, did he explain to you how the deck works? Yeah, of course. Like, I, I looked at it and I, I, I understood what was going on. Uh, but I, I, I definitely like think I lost round one because of not knowing. <laughs> I mean, it was I did lose them on a red, but like I, I didn't. I, I showed up round one, never had played a game with the deck before. Um, but I think casting blue spells was really important when we talked about uh, the card Preordain and uh, how how valuable that card can be. Um, and it was, I think there were a lot of instances, like, with first picking up the deck, where I have cards like cast out, how I go with the illumination sensor, where maybe you want to cycle those early on, but you just kind of have to, like, keep those in your grip and wait until you, like, resolve a second sun, or, you know, sensor something when you want to save it for, for when they, they tap out. Um, I don't know, there's a lot, like, I think what Nick said about Pyridae in the article was that there's a lot of, um, you could, you can just cast that card early on for no reason, right? To like maybe find land drops or something. Like he said you're not cards. supposed to. You're not, you're, you're, and you're not supposed to do that. Yeah. And that's, that's what I'm talking about. Like, I think that, that kind of translated to, I believe, you know, cards can you should just like cycle them right away or should you hold them on. And it's, you know, it's more profitable to hold them on after you're casting for a second sun, but you don't have a backup one than to just, you know, cycle through and the next, you know, two turns just cast your Blue White Approach to Second Sun's deck has such such volatility in its opening hands because you actually have to have a kind of hand that can develop baseline resources to the point that you're resolving sevens, right? Like, yeah. And in standard, that means you probably have to have at least eight or nine mana in play so that you can yeah. play through a sensor, for example, yeah. right? Like, and but you have to be prepared to win the long game. Yes, but you know you can't win the long game unless you have the ability to survive the short game. And so, talk to me about it. So this deck is not good against mono red main deck, you'd say? No. Is it horrible or it's? It. I mean, in the classic, I beat mono red, but I beat it by game one where I had, um, I think, glimmered and scryed to, to two second suns. So I was able to, you know, cast one, then gain seven life, survive, cast another. 
You know, I, I don't know if I ever wrote an article, maybe I should look up my oeuvre, about winning free games, just like getting free games. Yeah. Because I played, so I, while you were golf gallivanting around the world, not recording Ancestor Recall podcasts, I was winning FNMs, right? So the week of the Pro Tour, I won an FNM with Blue White Monument. The next week, I won a, a, an FNM with Mono Red. I borrowed both those decks from Land. And then the third consecutive week, I borrowed your Blue White Approach to the Second Sun's deck when you were at an anime convention instead of playing Magic the Gathering. Uh, and so, just this one with like all different decks. The one thing I'd say about those decks that I played is I especially at some point maybe in tough matchup I was able to get a free win somehow right and it was more true of the second sun deck than the others like I was just under pressure and about to die against like you know reasonable it's like my opponent had like the scare of god and gate to the afterlife in play I'm just definitely going to get overwhelmed by their resources right Mm -hmm. and then I just rip and approach the second sons and win the game on the spot right like like oh yeah I totally had the second one right on top of my deck yeah like I were playing against zombies at the the classic and I was all the first approach and I think he was going to kill me in a turn or two anyway I I ripped ripped one off the top and Cassie's like what how did that get I was like I I played more than one in my deck but he thought you only had one in your deck yeah he was he was confused at first, and I was like, I have more than one. So, yeah, it, it just like saved me from on the spot, right? I didn't have to like do any work to 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 survive the next couple of turns until he killed me. But yeah, so I I just found that deck to just have resources that you could just pow, you know, go for it, and, and yeah, and have uh, you know the wind in hand, which is different than mono red. Like mono red. Um, like, I didn't feel like I got a lot of free wins with Mono Red. I felt like I had to work pretty hard for it, but that the cards went together really well. Yeah, like sequence everything correctly, sideboard correctly. Yeah, and I actually didn't don't think I sideboarded perfectly in that tournament that I won. Yeah. Um, I think I would do better if I played the same 75 now. Mm. But, I mean, I think generally speaking, I'm a pretty good Mono Red technician. Like, I, I would totally, if I played FNM this week, I'd probably just play Mono Red again. I bought uh, your deck in Mono Red, so I have two standard decks. If you went to DC, or I hope you go to DC, what would you play? Who would you play, personally? Uh, I, I was trying to work on this deck, but I called you about it last night, but then I fell asleep. Uh, I'd probably play a mono black deck splashing for the, the Scarab. Scarab? Yeah. Just have a lot of counter spells and the can disruption. No, or just like beaters. No, oh, oh, and sideboard, sideboard yeah. yeah. Like four negates and a dispel, maybe like two Triangress the Mind. Boss Legacy for all the, the ramp decks. Why? Get rid of Ulamog. They're, they're just rope them with creatures. Okay. But I, I don't know. How are you killing them in creatures when they're blocking with 2-2 two, two zombies from their, their ramp spell? My 2-3 zombies have death touch and lifeline. <laughs> okay. Other guys fly. Oh, Drana? Yeah. Drana Liberator of Malagir. That card flies. That's true. Like, I actually think that this is probably a pretty good matchup for me. Really? Yeah. All right. Like, I just, like, they don't have good uh, good targets for for Fatal Push and... Grasp of Darkness, right? So I side no. that out. But I'll side it out for like negate and transgress. Like those cards are phenomenal against them while you're clocking them. Yeah. I mean, like, how good can it possibly be for them when I the Scarab got an Ulamog? Right? Like <laughs> How you like them apples, Roman? How are you gonna say how do you scarab god an Ulamog? 
Mog in the bin. How? You know, chicanery. What? I don't know, I just counter it. Okay. Counter counter Ulamog then scare about. Yeah. Alright. That sounds that sounds sweet. I hope you hope you do it. Like, I don't know. They can't, they're in mana screw, they discard the hand size. <laughs> so they discard their thing that costs hundred mana. Okay. Um what else? I don't know. I didn't have a. I didn't have a recording for that. I mean, a, a thing that we should read this week. I just wanted to talk about your. Tournaments. No, yeah. People yeah. are always like, oh, not enough Roman Fusco on the Ancestry Club podcast. So I was just giving them some Roman Fusco. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't. Know, I, I feel a lot better about, I guess, my like my play skill and my my deck choices than I did, you know, a year or two ago. I definitely feel like I'm, I'm getting close to, to qualifying. So I guess I'll talk like briefly about the RPTQ. Um, I played Second Son, a good like tune list that we did. I think uh, the list was awesome. No, I think so too. I just didn't play optimally. I was 3-0, and then I played against Ramp. Uh, so I, like, I crashed up game one. Game two had kind of a clunky draw. So Lan and I played the Second Son, uh, or was it was it you and me who played it, or me and Lan? Put the second Sun ramp matchup one yeah, night at John's place. I like one seven in a row, right? It's an yeah. overwhelmingly good matchup for second Sun, I found. Which is funny because Land thinks the opposite. Yeah, but then I played him, and yeah, yeah. But then he came to the. I actually also thought that ramp would be favored, right? Yeah. And then, I but, think, but the I problem think is there's like not enough on, business spells. Sure, and it can be dependent on their their draws too, right? Like. If they just have like a triple shrine draw, let's say, like Shrine of the Forsaken Gods. But the thing is they don't have enough business spells. Like you can no. just counter one thing and they might never draw another one before you kill them. The thing is sure. second sun deck is a combo deck. Right? It's yeah. not like if you're just like playing one of these control decks where I have to grind it out and kill them with like a uh, a single wandering fumarole over the course of like mm. you know twenty turns, that's a different scenario than a deck that just casts this two sorceries and wins the game on the spot, right? Yeah. Like, and and so um, I found I found it to be overwhelmingly good for for blue white approach, but also like the typical blue I'm sorry green red ramp deck in standard doesn't have traverse the Uven board, right? Like. I think if you're playing a deck with yeah. Traverse the Ubenwald and like you've got Traverse, um, basically more Ulamogs because of that, and then like some bullet creatures or after, I mean, the way I like to play it, after sideboarding like four Oblivion Sowers, like Oblivion Sower is such a powerful tactical card that you can play against Second Sons because it can mill the approach to Second Sons. And that effect can't be countered easily. Right, like no. you encounter the Oblivion Sower, but they still like, get the middle. Like they could still, have, if they know the position. I mean, obviously they know the position of their second sons. They could like glimmer, maybe, or, or try and like supreme will their way out of it. I mean, here's a, a, a scenario you can have, right? Like, um, I played for this scenario a bunch, right? Where they tap out for approach of second sons, but I sandbag and I just play two Oblivion Sowers in one turn, which while they're tapped out. Sure. Right, which will get them for eight, right? Yeah. You know, so because um, that's not that much more mana than just casting Ulamog, and you can just position yourself for that using tra- uh, Traverse the Ubenwald and you know shrines, etc. Yeah. Um, you know, I think also my ramp deck has a, a faster mana base, right? Because of Ruin in their wake and Shepherd Monitor, it's like less like. Like you can lose to dorky stuff with like the green red version. You get like, for example, just 
Can't you just get your mana seller cast outed? Like, yeah. Well, the the green red versions that were where we even played the RPTQ had no like creature, like no like creatures. It was all like power uh, of promise, Greenwood, Gift of Paradise. Yeah. So it's a bunch of like dorky ramp. Yeah. And, oh yeah. Like they don't even have a good way to like set up our paradise. I think. I'm sorry. Like, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Rather. Um. Anyway. So game three, I made a, a very. So you lost game two. How? Uh. I think he had a, just a, a very good like natural. He he got to ramp faster than I did and keep me off mana. I had I think he he kept me off mana faster than I could kill him. Yeah. Like going world breaker sanctum into Ulmog. Did you um. Stay uh, approach the second sun's deck after sideboarding, or do you like side in a bunch of guys? Or, do you uh, side in spell queller? Yeah, of course. I, I side I side in. Queller would be great. I just didn't bring in like the you know, Kara caller. Or, uh, I, I think those I, are low power. I, I actually he, think he, my, my is opponent still, also had tireless tracker. Yeah, uh, post board. I think Linvala is defensible because they're they're. Uh, Flying defense is weak, but it's not non-existent. No, because of World Breaker, yeah. That's what, like one thing I was thinking about. Um, but game, and, you know, some people also have Winwald Hydra, which also has reach. Yeah. Uh, World Breaker is like the, the hard one to deal with. Uh, game three, I had a game. I had an awkward game where I only had one white source the whole match, which was a Prairie Stream. And there was one turn where I had like Ipnu Rivulet untapped and Prairie Stream. I just like, like mistapped my mana. Um, end of turn, I had a Hieroglyphic Illumination that I wanted to cycle, so I cycled it um, with my Prairie Stream instead of like my, my blue source. Oh no! Yeah, you can tell. You can see where this is going. Oh no! And I drew a cast out, which I couldn't cycle that turn. And then you know. It ended up mattering. If you like, played properly, it would have mattered. It ended up mattering like five turns later, where my, my I was trying to set up a game where my opponent world breakers me. After I cast my first second son, I have a second son, another one, another second son in my hand. So I want to get to. You eight. can run or kill him. Yeah, you know, I, I, I want to try and find land so I can resolve the second one if he like world breakers my prairie stream. Um, and what happened on like, the last turn of the game, I ripped a seventh land, but it was an island. I had all blue sources, so I could see it because I was just dead to the Ulmong that he had in his hand because they got from Sanctum Bugen. And the top card of my deck was Plains. So if you had cycled the if, if I had cycled, like, paid a light with the, the you know, You would have been 4 and drawing into top 8. Probably. I think I think I, I might have not been able to draw on the top 8 at 4 but I, I, you know, I was one match away from, like, Yeah. From, so, and then you played against Mono Red and got raw. Yeah, and, of course, I got paired against, like, there were, like, two Mono Red decks at, at X1, or, you know, like, 4 or like, in the, in the, in the contention, there was, like, two Mono Red decks. Yeah. Both second Sun players who were sitting next to each other got paired against Mono Red, we both got crushed. So what if you played against the other second Sun player? Do you think you would have had the advantage against him? Maybe. He had Gideon of the Trials main deck. Yeah, that's good against you. Yeah. Um, but like if I got paired against, like, any, I think, like, any other deck, like, I, I crushed Hemer earlier in the day, I, I crushed, like, the God Pharaoh's Gift deck. Um... But yeah, I'm in game one, I was on the play, but I lost. Game two, I won, then game three, I was on the draw. Mulligan, my hand wasn't great. He went one drop, one drop, one drop. Oh, on Crop Crasher. You know what's the real tough matchup, I think, is Mardu. Yeah. I think it's like... We don't have Aether Mountain anymore. Extremely hard to win. Yeah. yeah. It, it was like a little frustrating that I, I didn't play optimally, and it was a really small mistake, too. And it, it kind of cost me the whole tournament, right? I really want to qualify for the Pro Tour. 
I don't just do Ancestral Recall every week because I play. I like to play Magic for fun. Well, <laughs> I would love to riff on whether or not we should play Magic for fun uh, for all of the country of Canada, but my phone is about to run out of battery. Oh. So um, what I'd like to do instead is just be encouraging to my friend Roman. He's like, Roman, I hope you win Grand Prix DC. It would make for a great podcast. Yeah. So I you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to give up Magic anytime soon. It was a little disheartening, you know, going to my RPTQ and being feeling very prepared with a good deck and not doing, you know, how, how well that I wanted to. But uh, it only fuels the fire. Yeah. Uh, I I know I'm really close, and I'm going to keep fighting until I get there. So that's the goal. The thing is, if New Rivolo is actually superior, like if you had been in the same situation with the uh, Blighted Cataract, you wouldn't even make oh, it. I, I, I had a match versus Teamer where I would have snapped loss with that card was Blighted Cataract. Aren't you glad that we made the change? Yeah, of course. Yeah, I, I played against Teamer and uh, he was like a, about to kill me like a Chandra Emblem or something. Yeah. Uh, and I got to mill my, I got to mill myself for four. And he's like, he didn't realize that I had the, I could do that. Yeah. He just didn't know, that we, you know the, the card very well. And I just cast like another one. Consigned to Oblivion was also great. I got to uh, consign over Unsummon. I got to consign a Chandra. Yeah. Uh, that was ticking up, so it wouldn't kill me like the next game. I got to cons. Oh, I had a really. Did you ever sweet- cast the black half? I didn't. Uh, I had a really sick game though. Do we? Didn't we put like one Aether Hub, Aether Hub in yeah. so that we could cast it? <laughs> yeah. I, I, I like it. I like the Mize. Uh, but I had one game against Godfarer's Gift where he went all in on. Uh, I forget the artifact that that searches for Godfarer's Gift. Um, had it in play, he was stuck on three mana. Gate to the Afterlife. Yeah, and uh, he got Godfarer's Gift. Before combat, I consigned it. He never. It was able to ever cast it the entire game. Oh man, I'm so glad we changed that card. It, it was sick. Like it, it definitely like improved my matches so much compared to the Unsummoned. We should uh, post the updated list actually, because I actually think that this is like a masterwork. The yeah, the I, I think and and spell color was great in the sideboard. But it, to the, final the thing word. is like even though Gideon of the Trials is good against us, like we have so many options. Like we can even like bounce their cast out if they cast out our cast out, like yeah. stuff like that, you know, or deal with their planeswalkers directly. Yeah. I, I do dream of casting the back half with yeah. the one Aether of. All right. Uh, let's uh, just say goodbye to Canada. Bye, Canada. Bye, Canada. Uh, just uh, thanks for listening. I know this is a little bit different episode for us this week. Um, just go to iTunes. I'm sure Carrie Dan and KYT put a, a link in the show notes. Go to iTunes. Uh, leave us a five-star review. Uh, subscribe. Write a nice note about how you've been cheering for Roman Fusco. <laughs> if for some reason you've gotten to this point in the podcast and uh, you don't like it, maybe because of the audio quality tonight, I, I won't. Yeah, the audio you. quality is is poop. I, I won't blame you for that. If uh, if that we're not going to make a habit of it on this podcast though. Um, yeah. it, it, but if that's the situation you're in, you know, just tweet at Roman underscore Fusco to give him the business. <laughs> All right. Bye, Canada. Bye.